Does the Lord have you in the waiting room? Pastor Ed Taylor says that while it's hard, it's profitable. It's hard to wait in times of silence. Our minds are just not willing to accept silence as from the Lord. Our minds are, are not willing to accept that this is silence from the Lord, so our minds naturally stir up all sorts of thoughts and ideas and even weird stuff. And we feel, we get to the conclusion where we feel like we have to do something to break the silence. And so our enemy will take that and, and take advantage of that and then join in on the attack and attack your mind and attack your thinking. But if you're in a time of waiting in silence, it's important for you to stay close to Jesus in abiding in Him and remain open to Him. This is amazing grace. This is When we're waiting in line at the grocery store or in commuter traffic or at the doctor's office, you might be thinking of it as a waste of your time. But when God has us in His waiting room, there's a purpose and good reason for it. Today on Abounding Grace, we'll help you make sense of these reasons of silence. Even Elijah went through such a season. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor to tell us about it from 1 Kings 21. A lot of times when you're starting the reading through the Bible in the beginning of the year and you've made that commitment, I'm going to go through Genesis all the way to Revelation. I'm going to follow this plan or I'm going to do this plan on my phone. And, and you get through Genesis, you get through Exodus. And then sometimes you think, well, Leviticus is so hard. I'm not going to get through Leviticus. But it's not just that Leviticus can be a difficult book to go through. That's not just it. By the time you get to Leviticus, through Genesis and Exodus, God has revealed so much to you in your life. And you might even sense a weariness in your life to go, man. And then you get to, you know, you kind of slow your roll in Leviticus. But in reality, Leviticus is a book on holiness. And as you're reading through about the holiness of God and the requirements of God, and there's sacrifice after sacrifice, and, and there, are, there, there is God saying, this is how I want to relate to you, I believe it's not just a practical reason why we stop reading the Bible through the year. It's also spiritual. If you look at your own Bible reading this last week or the last month, why is it that you have neglected? Why is it that we've neglected the Word of God? Why is it that we still keep up on the news? And why is it that we still know what pictures are posted on Instagram? And why is it that we know every false thing and every weird thing and on Facebook? And, and why is it that we still have Twitter, but we haven't been in the Word of God? I suggest to you that it's a spiritual problem. That, that it is a, a problem of disconnect between you and God. Between me and God. It's a smaller version of what God said to the church in Ephesus, that you've left your first love. Because love always builds anticipation wanting to hear from the Lord, desiring to hear. Well, why is it that we avoid Bible study? Well, why is it that we will avoid Bible study and give it a break for a couple weeks? Or 
I suggest that it's a spiritual issue in our lives. It's a relational issue. It's, man, it's hard to receive a hard word from the Lord. Everything in the Bible is not going to be super encouraging. Everything in the Bible is not going, why? Because the Bible tells the truth about the matters of which it speaks. And in order to learn the truth of the matters of which it speaks, we need to hear the truth. So your response when somebody comes to you with the truth tells you a lot about your personal walk with the Lord. You could blame it on them. Oh, they weren't nice enough or they didn't. You can blame it on them all you like. And, and it could be that we delivered it wrong. We used the wrong words. It, it, absolutely. But the reality is the closer you are to the Lord, it won't matter how it's delivered. It won't matter how it's delivered because the Lord's already been speaking to you about it. And he's already been leading you about it. And you're like, man, I know that brother could have been nicer. I know that sister could. Yeah, I know. But man, Lord, thank you for sending them anyway. Because sometimes a hard word is, even if it's delivered with roses and candy, is still going to be hard. And it's still going to be difficult. And Elijah here, this is a hard word. You're gonna, you're, dogs are going to lick your blood, man. And Jezebel, they're going to eat her. Oh, that's a hard word. So if you're in so much trouble, Ahab, you're so stinking wicked that you're going to have a nasty ending. Your life is going to end horrifically. And here he is after six years of silence. He comes on the scene. For six years of Elijah, he has been in what some would call, and I'd call it a season of silence. He's in a season of silence, what, what we would often refer to as a time of waiting on the Lord. We don't have any, in, we don't have any insight of what was, he, what was he doing for these years. Or what were, he just off the scene and then he's on the scene and there's a six-year waiting period uh, of time of silence in his life. And, and these are hard times for us, times of silence. They're very difficult for us to deal with. They're, they're very hard for us to endure silence, any type of silence. We live in such a noisy, chaotic world that's always going, always going. If, it, if it's not the, the buzz from 225, it's the buzz of a plane going over. If it's not the buzz, and then it's a car up and down the street. And if it's not that, it's the barking dog three doors down. If it's not the barking dog, it's the kids playing in the park. If it's not the kids playing, it's the, it's the refrigerator. It's making that buzz again. Why can't it just be silent in our house? And if it's not the refrigerator, it's the ice, if it's not the ice maker, it's like we live. There, there isn't really a time where we could have the kind of silence that we're looking for. And silence is hard to endure. I haven't even been silent for 30 seconds. And some of you in your mind is, what is he doing? What kind of trick is he doing? What is, it's, it's hard. It's hard to wait on the Lord. It's hard to wait in times of silence. Our minds are just not willing to accept silence as from the Lord. It's, our minds are are not willing to accept that this is silence from the Lord, so our minds naturally stir up all sorts of thoughts and ideas and even weird stuff. And we feel, we get to the conclusion where we feel like we have to do something to break the silence. And so our enemy will take that and, and take advantage of that and then join in on the attack and attack your mind and attack your thinking 
But if you're in a time of waiting in silence, it's important for you to stay close to Jesus in abiding in him and remain open to him and learn patience and endurance and perseverance. Learn to wait for that confident word from him. Fill yourself with God's word during this time. Submit to his spirit and be available to move in a moment's notice when his word comes. Let me show you an insight on that. Would you turn over to Matthew 25? Matthew 25. Jesus gives us a parable in instructing us how to wait. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus shares and teaches us insight on what it means to wait. And he, he says in verse 1, The kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise. How many were wise? Five. And then five were foolish. Now we have a parable that's going to give us insight by contrast. It's not the first time Jesus uses contrast to teach us. He's going to contrast us the wise, five wise, and the five foolish. Here, here's verse 3. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. The backdrop for this is a Jewish wedding ceremony. It is the anticipation it was a grand celebration, the anticipation of the bridegroom to come. There was, there was, in a Jewish wedding, there were three distinct parts to it. The first was the engagement period, which began really after birth as parents made the decisions of who they were going to set their kids up with. We don't do that too much anymore, but some I hear want to bring it back. But the engagement period. Then there came the espousal period. This was usually the year prior to, cer to the ceremony. The groom would go out and settle in a home and a career and get things in order. And as far as the espousal period, they were as good as married without the consummation. And then finally came the wedding ceremony. Unexpectedly, the groom would return to his bride unannounced and the entire village would be waiting in anticipation. And so here we isolate, Jesus isolates ten. Five were wise, five were foolish, and really the essence of foolishness that Jesus is saying here is that it's foolish not to be ready. It's foolish not to be ready. It is not wise for us to look at the bridegroom and his delay and not be ready. Instead, in verse 5, just slumbering and sleeping. You follow the characteristics of a fool throughout the scriptures and you see a fool carries so many uh, character traits that are not valuable, they're not desirable. A fool denies God exists according to Psalm 53. A fool is prone to gossip, Proverbs chapter 10 verse 18. A fool refuses sound counsel, Proverbs chapter 12 verse 15. And here their foolishness is because they're not ready. And during the delay, they fall asleep and no longer anticipate their return. In the delay, there is that tendency to just fall asleep and fill the delay with activity and with action. It says in verse 6, 
At midnight, a cry was heard, and behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, No, lest you should, that there should not be enough for us and you. You go rather to those who sell and buy it for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is a parable of readiness. Of course, it's a picture of the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ. But as we pull back from it, there's great application in learning to be ready and not relying on others, but rather relying upon the Lord. Waiting is hard. And yet it's profitable. Waiting in silence is hard, and yet it's profitable. And we know it's profitable from the times that we've waited and God has revealed himself to be faithful. So come back to 1 Kings. Be wise, be ready, and stay in a place of readiness. There's so much to that parable that, that you can go back in our studies in Matthew and listen to, but the readiness is really important because if you stay in that place of readiness, then you're staying in that place of waiting. Readiness equals waiting. Not falling asleep. I mean, I think there's an application of that too is, is, as we're waiting on the Lord, it's easy for the church to slumber and sleep as if the Lord's not coming back. I, and from such an anticipation of the soon return of Jesus, and now a lot of the church is saying today, oh, don't worry. You guys, you guys that emphasize prophecy and you guys that are reading the newspaper and all the current events, oh, don't, don't even, don't do that. And, and demeaning and diminishing the return of the Lord. Listen, the expectant return of the Lord, the Bible says, automatically begins to work holiness and purity in your lives. Because if you expect the Lord to come back at any time, your readiness will reflect that in your life choices. But if we're just living for today and we're slumbering and sleeping spiritually, then we're going to be surprised at his coming and not ready. And Elijah now comes after six years of silence and he rebukes Ahab. Dogs are going to lick your blood. And Ahab is here. Jezebel is the one that did this. Jezebel's the one that arranged this, but Ahab is held responsible for it. Ahab's held responsible. Why? Well, he's the leader of his home. He's the king of Israel. His sulking and his whining instigated her actions, and he cast Naboth in an unfavorable light to her. It all started with him, not with her. And so Ahab, verse 20, he looks at Elijah in verse 20. He says, you're my enemy. Now, the answer to that, that's actually a true statement and a false statement. It's true because Ahab has set himself up in, his, in idolatry as an enemy of God, and so that anybody coming on behalf of God would be an enemy. So that's true, but I don't believe that's where Ahab is right now. I don't think he's making some spiritual uh, statement here. He looks at Ahab, he looks at Elijah, and he just says, You know what? You're my enemy. I don't like what you have to say to me. I don't like anything that you've done with me. And basically is writing him off before he's able to finish what he was sharing. But he's telling Ahab the truth. Anyone that's willing to tell you the truth is not an enemy. Actually, I put into the category 
of enemy or, or really lacking in friendship, someone that looks me in the eye and lies to me. That doesn't sound like a friend to me, <laughs> that someone knows the truth but will look me in the eye uh, and lie to me. That, that's not a good thing. The truth is hard for Ahab. Calamity is coming. His posterity is leaving. And for Jezebel, you know, dogs are going to eat her. It's just crazy. Insanity of what happens, the end result of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Again, we'll revisit the, the need of men and women in our lives who share the truth with us. Iron sharpening iron, especially when we need to hear it. And Elijah's not Ahab's enemy here. He's a friend as he shares the truth. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, in verse 25, there was no one like Ahab. This is 1 Kings 21. There's no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And so it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See now, Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days, but in the days of his son I will bring the calamity on his house. God's assessment of Ahab is that he was the worst ruler in Israel to date. Just as bad as the Canaanites, the Amorites, all of the ites before him. But in verse 27, Ahab has a res- an emotional response to this. That many commentators would say that verse 27 represents Ahab's repentance. And the question then would be, did Ahab really repent? Did Ahab really repent? And the only way that we can answer that question is by what the Bible says. And according to verse 29, we just have to take God's word for it because God saw his heart and what, he, what, what happened in verse 27, God says that he humbled himself and he accepted that hum- humility and now the calamity is going to pass over a generation. God accepted his repentance as real and genuine. And yet, there's no place in the scriptures that ever say Jezebel changed. There's no place in the Bible that ever says she repented or surrendered her will or anything like that. And what it tells us today as we close the chapter is that humbling ourselves and repenting opens up doors of joy and excitement and brings back that relationship with the Lord. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I was just thinking if there was going to be a scripture written about me somehow or if there was going to be some final article written about my life or anything about, I mean, it's not going to be perfect. It's, the article is not going to say he was a perfect man, never made any mistakes. Definitely not going to say that. But I'll tell you what, I don't want it to say what verse 25 says. I, I, can't, I can't make the article say Ed was a perfect man and never made a mistake. That's foolish. That never happened. But I can avoid verse 25 where you know, can you imagine? I'm not even going to do it. I don't even want to hear it. You can put your own name in there. Don't say Ahab. Put your own name in there if, if you need to. I, I don't even want to put my name in there. But there was no one like Ahab. I can't put my name in there. Who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. But even if you're here today and you're listening to this Bible study 
and you say, I'm Ahab. That paragraph could describe my life. Fortunately, there's still verse 27 in Ahab's life and in yours that today you can make a real significant change in your life if you will humble yourself before God and admit that you've sinned. What we call that confession. The Greek word in the New Testament when it speaks of confessing your sins means to agree with God. When you confess your sins, you're agreeing with God that you see sin in your life the same way God sees sin in, in your life. You confess them. And then when you turn away from them and you turn away from that behavior, the Bible calls that repentance. Repentance. You confess and you repent of your sins. And it is a, by doing that, that is an act of humility. There are times when I'm ministering to someone and they're sharing some difficult thing in their life and they're getting it off their chest and they're repenting and they felt like they needed to tell a pastor or they needed and and there'll be times that it's just so difficult to hear and and I I think man how hard it must be for the person to tell me I mean if it's hard to hear can you imagine how hard it is to tell someone else and in many ways, like I'm, I'm not their dad, I'm not their um, brother, I, I'm, I'm a pastor in God's church, but it's not like we hang out all the time and, and we're over at boondocks playing games together. Like this is someone that is sitting down with someone that they've really never shared anything like that before. And there'll be times when it's so, that emotion is so strong where I'll just say, you know, not only, not only is it a good thing that you confess this to the Lord, but I thank you for trusting me with what you said, that I'm the tool that God would use in your life to get right with him. And it doesn't have to be a pastor. So, you know, when you you think about, well, Ed, if you're open for confession, then I'm going to get in line. No, 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 it doesn't have to be me. The Bible says in James that you can confess your sin to one another. A lot of people don't like to do that. They like to cover up their sin. Confessing your sin to another doesn't mean that person forgives you. Like it's not, they're not God in your life. But when you admit sin you humble yourself. There are times when people will commit a sin and their sin is actually involving someone else. And they'll come and they confess it and then almost immediately the first thing is, well, did you tell the person? No, 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 I didn't tell the person. Why would I tell the person? I got it right with God. Because you sinned against the person. Well, no, 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 that's going to make things worse. No, actually lying to them every day of your life is making things worse. The only way that God will bring freedom in our lives is to walk in the light as he is in the light. Then we share life together. Or the Bible says we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God. And humility is the way out. Even if something could be written for your life right now, you go, you know, I look back and I've just failed miserably. I've done wickedness. Well, you can repent today. And God can do a work in your heart and your life in the days that you have left. He can take you and move you forward away, farther and farther away from your failures of your past and give you a newness of life, even as a believer, even as a believer. He wants to free you and release you. And he wants you to have dignity 
that's only found by faith of righteousness in Christ Jesus. Well, we've been looking at the book of 1 Kings today on Abounding Grace. Ed Taylor is our teacher, and he's the pastor of Calvary Church, Colorado. You can catch what you may have missed online at calvaryaurora.org. You can also listen on iTunes or through our app. Do a search for Calvary Aurora. Have you made a New Year's resolution? Many of us have, but perhaps you're frustrated as you're finding it hard to break free of a stubborn habit. We'd like to offer some help in the form of a book by Erwin Lutzer. It's called Getting to Know, spelled N-O. In it, he provides practical tools that will help you find the freedom you desperately want to have from those nasty, bad habits. We'll send you a copy when you support the ministry of Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more today. We can't thank you enough for your support, especially as we begin another year on this station. It's a step of faith and we continually ask the Lord for His provision. We can be reached toll-free at 877-30-GRACE or turn to calvaryaurora.org. Glad you've taken time out for our study in 1 Kings. We'll pick up where we left off next time we get together on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado. 